Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger, the outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Grab a pick and a shovel, bring your cap and light. Don't forget the fuses and the dynamite. Better wear your knee pads and the safety toes. We're going to the truck mines where the coal is low. The 20th century saw a tremendous change and upheaval as the world strained to incorporate the incredible energy that lay within oil and coal. Governments reshaped themselves around a new power source and businesses boomed. On today's show, we talk with Dr. Timothy Mitchell of Columbia University about his book, Carbon Democracy, Political Power in the Age of Oil. We're going to be talking with Timothy Mitchell about the ways in which coal and oil made our ideas of what a political system does and what is possible through our political systems. We're going to talk about the ways that coal led to general strikes and the ability for labor to make demands on elites. We're going to be talking about sabotage, machines, the future of energy, and now that we're in an era of net energy decline, what that means for our government systems. After we speak with Tim Mitchell, we're going to be talking with Richard Heinberg about his new book, Snake Oil, the story that underlies all the hype on Wall Street and in the media about the shale oil bubble. I'm Seth, joined by my co-host, Justin. You're listening to episode number 69 of The Ex-Environmentalist. Coal made modern mass democracy possible and oil set its limits. And that's really the history of the last hundred years. The easiest way is to start with coal and the rise of modern mass democracy in the industrialized countries in the late 19th, early 20th century. Of course, it's always been known that coal gave rise to industrialization and the growth of large cities. And it was there that social movements struggled for the right to the vote for everyone and other aspects of modern mass democratic politics. But the book makes a much more specific argument about coal and democracy, because what coal did was it transformed the sources of energy, it transformed society from a system in which energy was gathered in a very dispersed way in which energy was largely solar, if you like, in the sense that when people got their energy from wood and from animals and from crops and from rivers, they were dependent on forms of solar radiation for the replenishment to a fossil fuel that was vastly more concentrated as a source of energy, but available in relatively few sites, unlike the very distributed availability of solar forms of energy. And that gave rise, on the one hand, to possibilities like industrialization, but also to an enormous vulnerability of the rich and the powerful. Because you could become rich and powerful through industrialization, but you were now vulnerable to the fact that your wealth depended on this one 
source of energy that came out of the ground in coal mines and moved along very fixed routes, rail lines, was unloaded by specific groups of workers and used in power stations and factories and in forms of transportation. What you had for the first time in history as a result was the possibility of organized workers shutting down an economy, something that had never been possible before, the threat that came to be known as the general strike which was not just a strike of everybody in a country, but a specific kind of strike that usually began with coal workers and spread to their allies, are those who were also involved in the movement of this new form of energy, the railway workers and the dock workers. It was under the pressure and the threat of shutting down an energy system that the privileged and the elites of the industrialized countries were finally forced to give in to the demands for the vote for everyone. And then for a whole series of other innovations that created the forms of social democracy that defined the 20th century in those countries. That is to say, beyond the right to the vote, the right to basic forms of health care, to a pension in old age, to insurance against industrial accidents and sickness, and to everything that made collective life suddenly much, much less precarious for large numbers of people. It seems to me that organized labor then only became a reality when fossil fuels became something that was widely available. Is that correct? Basically, yes. Uh, obviously, there was a longer history of the attempt to organize labor in that way that, that arose with the rise of modern manufacturing and modern forms of energy. But it's interesting that as late as the 1870s, Friedrich Engels, a Marxist collaborator writing about the possibility of a general strike ridicules the idea. He can't imagine the possibility of a successful general strike because to his mind, if workers were well organized and well connected and powerful enough to organize a strike that was effective on a national scale, they would already be so powerful that they would be, be a more powerful institution than the state. And in a sense, they would already therefore be in power and a strike would be an unnecessary detour. What changed wasn't the ability of workers to organize after that per se, though they continued to develop the ability. But by the turn of the century, with the increased dependence on coal and particularly with the increased dependence on electricity that was being generated now from coal, this specific vulnerability to a strike that was general because it was targeted at a country's energy system. So yes, organized workers, but a specific form of vulnerability to the power of organized workers that came into being somewhere between the 1880s, 1890s and continued on through much of the first half of the 20th century. Now, just how large of a general strike are we talking about here? What would the impacts of one of these strikes really be? Because of the dependence on coal and because there were not at that point alternative sources of energy, oil was around, but it was used not to drive machinery and transportation, but as a lighting, as a source of kerosene for lamps. So really it's a dependence on a single source of fuel in the late 19th, early 20th century to drive industrial economies. So very rapidly, you could bring not just that energy system to a halt just by interrupting uh, trains and docks and coal mines, but collective life in general. Food would no longer be brought by train to cities. Police forces could no longer be moved quickly around the country to combat the strikes. In every single way, countries have become vulnerable in a way that was, as I say, unprecedented. And because this needed alliances among different groups of workers across the country, it went not just with specific demands for better pay and better working conditions for those groups in the critical positions, but it accompanied this much broader set of collective demands for the right to unionize, for the right to then use the bargaining power of unions to, to demand other kinds of labor rights, security of job, pension, health insurance, and so on. And partly then 
in response to that, those in power in the industrialized countries start making a much broader set of concessions, given, for example, the vote to women. One of the motives in finally giving in to very powerful women's movements is that an attempt to sort of dilute, as it were, the more radical power of the workers organized around energy by having an, another voice in parliament. But the overall effect of that was then to have much more effective representation of collective demands for a more egalitarian form of society. So we see general strikes now starting to become more of a common thing, especially as austerity bites in European countries. We're seeing growing anti-austerity movements and general strikes. Are these really having the same impact as those coal strikes that you're talking about back in, in the late 19th century had? Or was the difference really that ability to shut down society because of the energy source. I think it's much more difficult now, on the whole, for organized forms of labor to have that kind of effectiveness. I mean, not to detract in any way from the force of the kinds of movements, but what happened in the course of the 20th century, beginning quite early on, was that governments and ruling elites began to try to figure out how to organize themselves against this new threat. And there were a variety of ways that happened, and I explore a lot of them in the book. The invention of the economy, which we can talk about later, is one of the things that happens in a certain way in response to that. But the one I focus on first, and that is sort of most useful for thinking about immediately in terms of the way things change, was they began looking for another source of energy. And that was available in oil. And as I said, oil had not previously been used as a direct substitute for coal, but it started to be used, particularly in transportation. And what one sees things like the Royal Navy in Britain on the eve of World War One, switching from using coal to using oil. Winston Churchill, who was in charge, is famous for having made that decision. What's not often remembered is that one of the reasons that he made the decision was because of the strikes of the coal miners, the South Wales coal miners, who produced a special form of coal that was used by battleships, and that he felt vulnerable to the political power of the coal miners. And oil did not represent the same vulnerability. It's interesting to think about what's different about oil as a form of energy that made it different. One thing, of course, is simply that it was a second source of energy. So suddenly you had an alternative. So if it was a strike by the coal miners, you could substitute oil in many cases. But uh, there were also differences in the kind of energy source that oil is that contributed to the opportunities to use oil to weaken this kind of mass democratic politics that had emerged. The first of those actually is just location. Because coal was initially developed uh, for industrial purposes in relatively few sites and was heavy to transport. The industry had grown up near where the coal was, so in parts of Northwest Europe in particular and certain places in the US and so on. Because oil came second, the industry didn't grow up where the oil was, by and large. There are some exceptions to that, but by and large, the oil was available in other places and was also relatively light to transport compared to coal. And so that tended to be shipped to where the industry and to where industrialized economies had already been established. So you get, instead of oil from the Middle East, for example, giving rise to industrialization in the Middle East, it's used to support and enhance the forms of industrialization already underway in Europe and other places. But there's other things that are interesting and that are different about oil, besides the fact that it just came second and that it was located at a further distance. Because it was located at a further distance, it was much harder for the workers producing the oil to link up with the workers in the industrialized countries who were unloading the oil and helping to use it. 
So uh, the kinds of alliances that have been possible with coal, very closely linked alliances between railway workers, coal workers, shippers, and certain dock workers in one country. Much more difficult when you're dealing with one set of workers in, say, Iraq and another set of workers in Britain to make those alliances. The other thing about oil is that it needs far fewer workers because you don't have to send people down under the ground to dig it out. It comes out of the ground initially under its own pressure. So you have small workforces. They're on the surface. They're relatively easy to supervise. And once the oil is out of the ground, because it's a liquid, you can pump it in pipelines and ship it in tankers. So all the work of loading and unloading coal that have been that point of vulnerability I mentioned before disappears. You can interrupt and disrupt pipelines and tankers, but it's much harder. And tankers being afloat on the sea, they're different from trains. They don't go along fixed routes. And so if there's a strike in one place, you can always route a tanker differently or bring it from a new location. So all those very practical, material, technical ways, it was harder to organize those forms of vulnerability with oil. One can jump forward to the present and in many ways it's become harder still. And so forms of political protest, whether they're based in labor strikes or other forms of collective action, find it harder and harder to find the points of vulnerability where those in power can be made to listen to collective demands. We can talk more about that, but uh, that's the overall picture. Yeah, that's that's interesting that you compare coal to like a solidarity forming fossil fuel. It's it's something that brings people together and oil is something that kind of helps to dilute mass democracy a little bit. I'm wondering if there's a comparison to the emergence of the internet, the mass communication paradigm that now exists. Is that comparable to the emergence of, of say coal now that people all have a voice and are able to spread information very well, quickly? Well, that's a very interesting question. And often the parallel is made between the internet and other contemporary forms of alternative energy, green energy, that are networked together or potentially networked together in new ways. I don't think it's as simple as that. You see, part of what's different about this view of the emergence of mass democracy is that it focuses as I've been saying, on these points of vulnerability, these points where the movement of sources of energy or other critical things on which the wealthy and the production of wealth depends can be interrupted or threatened. Now, that's different from the conventional view of democracy. The conventional view of democracy is much more about sort of networking. It's about people coming together and sharing ideas. And it tells a story from the 19th century about how factories or cities or other forms of social transformation brought large numbers of people together the way the internet does today, and enable them to share and exchange. And out of that exchange of ideas came some form of sort of enlightenment or some form of communicative harmony. And out of that emerged forms of democratic consciousness. So it's the conventional story is one where democracy depends on developing the right forms of political consciousness. My story is very different from that for the 19th century and the early 20th century. I don't think the right consciousness is never an issue. I think most people usually want a better collective life and a more egalitarian and less precarious form of living together. And they don't need particular technologies to tell them that. What the technologies were important for, as I say, is creating the points of vulnerability so that people who had always struggled for those kinds of things had a more effective way of making their demands felt. So if we jump forward to the internet and the present, I think there's a similar kind of story to be told. So the argument sometimes made is that Either it's made just about the internet itself or it's made with a parallel to the internet. So some people will say, well, look, with the rise of the internet, there's so much more communication. People are able to produce their own information and share it, and that gives rise to forms of democratic politics. Well, 
yes and no. I mean, the internet also gives rise to vast mega corporations like Amazon and Google and Apple and others that are not in themselves particularly democratizing forces. The parallel that's made with energy systems goes as follows. Uh, the argument is that if we move from fossil fuels to distributed forms of energy production, the production of green energy through small-scale solar or wind or other renewable energy sources, and then we network those together, we'll have a kind of less centralized, a less powerful energy industry, and that in itself will be democratizing. For the same reasons, I don't think it follows necessarily, because I think it doesn't in and of itself create the vulnerabilities of those with power to popular demands. Now, that doesn't say these questions are not significant. I'd certainly say that when one's thinking about the design of future energy systems, it's worth bearing in mind that futures of democracy, among other things, are at stake. But it's not a situation where if you tell me the kind of energy system you have, I'll tell you how democratic you are. Right. And to me, one of the parallels, maybe perhaps what you wrote about in Carbon Democracy and the ability for coal to concentrate these vulnerabilities in a way that the working class could enact their demands is maybe in the way that sabotage could play out. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, in the book, I trace this interesting history of the word sabotage. Of course, now we think of sort of sabotage as an act of violence and particularly in sort of military connotations and so on, which was a sense it took on. But I don't think it's helpful to think of it necessarily in those ways, because initially it began as this very interesting political idea. And it began with those same coal miners and dock workers that I mentioned before in the late 19th century. And what happened was dock workers were on strike in Liverpool, actually, in England. And the management just brought in replacement workers and the dock workers all lost their jobs. So the next time they did it, they said, well, instead of going on strike, what we'll do is we'll work like those replacement workers. Of course, those replacement workers were unskilled and not very particularly good at loading ships and unloading ships. They dropped things. They did it wrong. We'll just do the same thing. We'll load the ships not particularly well. We'll work as slowly as an unskilled worker works. And that was what sabotage was. It was what came to be known as the sort of work to rule and other kinds of methods of industrial action where you don't actually go all out on strike. You actually find some subtle way to disrupt the workings of complex industrial processes. So railway workers used it. Add a little something to the engine box of a locomotive and the train moves much slower. It was discovered that because of the way labor was so important to complex industrial processes, you could exploit the vulnerabilities that I've been talking about through these very minor acts of disruption or working more slowly or working more clumsily and so on. And that was the original meaning of sabotage. One of the interesting things about sabotage is that it's not only something that workers learn to do. And one of the great American thinkers who takes up the idea of sabotage after the First World War economist named Thorsten Veblen says, if you think about it, it's actually very often not the workers, but the capitalists who are doing the sabotage because they exist to set up their own sort of diversions of things. And what they're trying to do is divert resources into their own pockets. And I don't have time to summarize his whole argument, but he sort of takes this notion of sabotage and turns it around and uses it as a way to think about capital rather than the workers. So one can think of this sort of vulnerability that is important to the emergence of democracy as this sort of long history over 100 years of people trying to figure out what are the points of vulnerability, where can a process be disrupted so that that ability to disrupt can be used for positive political ends. So we've been talking about coal a lot. Can you walk us through some of the transition from coal into the development of oil and the modern oil company? 
I mentioned one side of it, which is that, as it were, oil potentially could be used to de-democratize or to weaken democracy in countries that had democratized using coal because it was lighter, it could be brought from elsewhere. If you like, it was the original outsourcing. We think of outsourcing as the moving of factory jobs overseas to places where people can't go on strike. But that happened a lot earlier with the sourcing of energy, with the gradual supplementing of coal and replacement of coal with oil as a source of energy. And it relied on the fact that, as I said, that it needed far fewer workers, that the workers were dispersed in faraway places, and that the oil itself was fluid and could be moved along different routes that were harder to interrupt with strike action. But there was another aspect to it, and this is where the multinational oil company's history comes in. Because of the ease of transporting oil, the people who are starting to make very large amounts of money from the production of oil are actually themselves somewhat vulnerable, but not to the workers in the same way. The difference from coal was as follows. With coal, since it's so heavy to transport, it tended to be used very close to where it was produced, with few exceptions. It wasn't transported very far. So as a coal producer, you were vulnerable to competition, but only from nearby coal fields. So what you tended to do was to produce a producer agreement, a cartel agreement with neighboring coal fields and fix the price so that you didn't have to deal with this annoying thing called competition where somebody would open a new coal mine and sell the coal cheaper than yours and put you out of business. Oil producers wanted the same thing. They wanted to avoid competition. They wanted to avoid being undermined by rivals and some of the first big oil producers, uh, Rockefeller, John Rockefeller in the U.S. beginning in the 1860s and onwards, realized this and very quickly began to organize the takeover of rivals and the organization of monopolies on a larger and larger scale so as not to have to deal with the threat of competition and, on the contrary, to realize the enormous profits that could be made from this very, very cheap-to-produce energy source that could be sold for relatively large amounts of money. The trouble Rockefeller faced and similar people organizing oil companies, Shell and what became BP and so on, in Europe in the early 20th century was that this threat of competition was not just a local thing because the oil was so light that it could be brought across oceans that if you set up an oil company, you were liable to be undercut anytime anyone discovered oil anywhere in the world. So you had to put together an organization that could actually control oil all over the world. And that's the origins of the multinational oil company of, of Rockefeller Standard Oil, which is now called ExxonMobil, and of Shell and BP and of the other giant oil companies that came into being at the beginning of the 20th century or earlier. And it wasn't just that they got big because companies tend to get big. They got big because the extraordinary profits they were making were extraordinarily vulnerable. And the only way to deal with that vulnerability was to prevent new oil from being produced by a rival, by a competitor, anywhere. So they very quickly spread out and started controlling the production of oil in Southeast Asia and also early in the 20th century in the Middle East. Interestingly, one of the things they were often concerned to do was not to find new oil. It was sort of known roughly where a lot of the oil was going to be found, but to prevent it being found, to block rivals from even getting exploration rights. And having got the exploration rights, to do your best not to produce oil. So although oil in the Middle East was discovered at the beginning of the 20th century, very little of it was produced until the second half of the 20th century. They just didn't want more oil because that would have lowered the price. And so even where an oil industry was set up quite early on, such as in Iraq, by a consortium headed by the company today known as BP, they would deliberately drill shallow oil wells so as not to actually discover it. And if they did accidentally hit the oil, they would plug 
the well immediately in order to absolutely minimize the rate at which the oil was being produced. And in all kinds of other ways, through much of the 20th century, and the methods change, seek to limit the production of oil so as to maximize the production of profit. That's what the multinational oil company was all about. And so now we're looking at where we're sitting today and oil is costing maybe about $90 a barrel for the price in the U.S. But what kind of price were we talking about that oil companies were charging for oil in this era in the early 20th century? Or how much did it really cost them to produce? Because the problem wasn't that there wasn't enough oil, it was that there was too much and that it was too cheap and they were actually creating the scarcity right. through even addressing lifestyles too, right? We've gone through this enormous transition because we're now in this era where oil is increasingly difficult to find. And through most of the 20th century, the last 100 years, the situation has changed dramatically in the last decade as we've moved from a century in which there was almost always too much oil to a period now in which it's increasingly difficult to find. But just staying in the 20th century for the moment, there were other ways of attempting, as it were, to keep oil scarce besides plugging wells and investing very little in development, but just trying to monopolize the rights to it. One of them, for example, was working very hard to keep the Soviet Union out of the world oil business. I mean, it was always talked about that somehow the Soviet Union was a threat to the West oil in the Middle East, whereas in fact, what they were trying to do was not to prevent the Soviet Union from somehow getting its hands on oil, but was that it would take for its own uses somehow, but to prevent the Soviet Union, which of course was a major major, major oil producing from finding any way to sell its oil to the West, which might create a market, something that the communists were very keen to do, but the capitalist oil companies really didn't want. But the other side of it was to solve the problem of too much oil, particularly in the second half of the 20th century, was to constantly search for ways to use more of it up. So from the 1940s onwards, you have oil companies together with other corporations interested in oil, car manufacturers and so on, working together to try and put in place ways of living, in the US in particular, that were enormously carbon heavy. So introducing motor cars that had larger and larger engines, buying up public transportation companies that used electric trams and other kinds of non-oil sources of energy and putting them out of business, supporting the development of highways and suburbs and suburban living, all the forms of life that made the United States in particular and North America in general enormously dependent on carbon energy, on oil for its way of living and all kinds of other developments, the development of other uses for oil, the, the growth of industrial agriculture, of artificial fertilizers, of plastics, of all these ways of becoming more and more dependent on carbon fuel. So that was an important part of what was going on in the second half of the 20th century. So deliberately building an extraordinary level of dependence on a non-renewable source of energy. So we learned in school that the beginning of World War One was when Archduke Ferdinand was shot. But what was going on with the oil at the time? Was there another reason that war was declared? There was a much larger imperial struggle going on between Britain and France on the one hand who had been rivals but had become allies and Germany on the other. And this was being fought out in various parts of the world, Africa, the scramble for Africa. There was a big crisis in Morocco where the French established colonial control of Morocco and Germany protested that. It wasn't just a protest about one country in North Africa, but a, a general sense that a set of imperial empires were reaching the limit of their competition. 
But the other crisis besides the Moroccan one that led to the First World War was in Turkey, in the Ottoman Empire, as they're called, between, again, Germany and Britain, but more between bankers and financiers. And what that was about was a part of the Ottoman Empire that today we call Iraq and about the oil resources of Iraq and about a project to build not a pipeline, but another way of shipping the oil out, a railway, and a huge crisis over the financing of what was known as the Baghdad Railway was another cause of the war. It was more, these were as much sort of crises of sort of imperial finance as they were over territories and things like that. But one of the main things the finance was interested in was there was the exploitation of raw materials and in particular oil in the case of Iraq and the Ottoman Empire. So that there's a sort of bigger story there about oil. Though, again, it's important to remember that it's not a simple story of the industrialized countries needing more oil. That was partly the case on the German side, but even the main German oil company, which was actually the big German bank, Deutsche Bank, Deutsche Bank had sort of secured the rights that would give it control of Iraqi oil sometime before, because what it had got was the rights to this railway I mentioned, the Baghdad Railway. And what it then did was it deliberately did not build the railway because it didn't want the oil. It already had plenty of other oil it was involved in the production of. So it wasn't, there's often a sort of simple view of the relationship between oil as this sort of strategic commodity and the outbreak of imperial struggles and of war that because they're so desperate to get their hands on the energy, they go to war. That wasn't the story. The problem with the energy was that it was too available. It was too easy to get. And you had to figure out ways to prevent your rivals from getting it. And that led to these incredibly complicated political and diplomatic struggles. And World War partly came out of one of those. The new 1953 Chevrolet. Isn't that a sight to take your breath away? And that beautiful, beautiful grill. <laughs> there I go getting carried away again. I could just talk about it all day. Yes, it's the new 1950 Futuramic Oldsmobile that is rocketing your way right now. In our ignorance about our own history, how curious, for example, that the First World War is never taught in our schools as an invasion of Iraq. The Berlin-Baghdad Railway commenced construction in the years leading up to the First World War. The Royal Navy had just switched from coal to oil. German Navy follows suit, but they don't have no oil-producing colonies, no place in the sun. Thus begins Drang nach Osten, the drive to the east, spine of which policy is the Berlin-Baghdad Railway. Now, there's already track laid from Berlin to Constantinople, of course. It's called the Orient Express. The Germans just have to build the last 900 clicks. It's going to take them clear into Baghdad. But there is huge opposition to this project among the major European powers. The Russians, the French, the Dutch, the Belgians, and the British. We're opposed to this for two main reasons. Firstly, we recognize that we cannot compete with the Germans in engineering terms alone. Because we know that passengers will simply not accept the Sarajevo to Basra replacement bus service. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
Secondly, we know once this is built, ain't nothing to stop a Munich businessman getting out of the Baghdad terminus with the Deutsche Bank checkbook smashing our cartel. So a phony war begins. In the 95 years since Mesopotamian oil was first struck at Majdidi Suleiman, and a British lieutenant sent a telegram to the Glasgow office of Burma Oil, which read, See Psalm 104, verse 15, line 3, which is, of course, See, now, when I did my gig in Texas, the entire audience, as one, roared out that he may bring out of the earth oil to make a cheerful countenance. In the 95 years since that telegram was deciphered in Glasgow, Britain has been at war with or occupying Iraq for 45 of them. Now, if you're a broadcaster, a journalist, looking for a neutral, objective, analytical, coldly rational, ideologically uncluttered way to describe that reality. The phrase you're looking for will be something about British and American plans to bring democracy to the Middle East. This is the American dream of freedom on wheels. Free-flowing channels of concrete and steel. But these wide lanes of reality actually measure out to just a few miles scattered far apart across the friendly face of our land. We have become the nation on wheels. Though we have the greatest highway system in all the world, it can't carry the mounting traffic of our growing greatness. We're running out of roads. We didn't dream big enough. What rings up store sales today is parking space. Best investment a town can make. Lots of parking. Once upon a time, Los Angeles was not shrouded in smog. It had one of the best electric streetcar systems in the country. But the electric trolleys disappeared, and that was no accident. The streetcar didn't fail uh, because of demographics or economics. Uh, it failed because General Motors killed it. What happened in Los Angeles happened in many cities. General Motors conspired with oil and tire companies to dismantle electric trolley lines across America. The whole concept came from General Motors. They would go in, they'd buy a street railway system, they'd convert it to General Motors buses, they'd op the, the, the General Motors buses would run on Firestone tires, and they'd be fueled by in the East Phillips and in the West Standard Oil California. It was a great, great scheme. You know, it was a tremendous scheme for selling a, a very large amount of automo automotive products. In 1947, the federal government charged General Motors and its partners with criminal conspiracy. The result, however, uh, was that General Motors was fined $5,000. And its key official, who was an assistant secretary of General Motors, one of the people who was intimately involved in this whole operation, uh, was fined the magnanimous sum of $1. Now, you have to, you got to compare that, compare that with the damage that was done. Los Angeles today is, is trying to begin rebuilding its rail system. Their fondest projection is that perhaps in 20 years, they'll be able to rebuild at least part of it at a cost of $150 billion. And this is, this is the legacy of what, you know, of what GM left us with. Without cars, suburbia wouldn't be possible. But once we live in suburbia, each year there are more of them. Each year there must be more highways and expressways to take care of them. You're listening to episode number 69 of The Extra Environmentalist. Today we're talking with Tim Mitchell about political power and the age of oil.
Today, we talk about the idea of developed nations and underdeveloped nations, or even the concept of sustainable development. Now, where did this idea of development come from, and is it really a useful framework? And then we try and relate it to what we've been thinking about in relation to oil and the history of energy in particular, because it's really a story one can locate at the end of World War II and of changed relationships between the U.S. and other industrialized countries and the countries of what we would now refer to perhaps as the global south after World War II. Those countries of the south, places like Egypt and India and Latin American countries after World War II were calling for a radical reorganization of the global economy, of the system where a few countries and a few global corporations had got enormously wealthy, and they'd done so in part thanks to the resources they were able to extract from countries of the South, including oil. And there was a lot of concern and a lot of proposals in the post-war period that commodities from the countries of the South, oil and many others, should actually be under some kind of international regime that they shouldn't be the property of, of individual multinational corporations, but there should be some sort of general scheme where commodities are produced, are shared, and there is some debate and there is some sort of democratic issue of where the profits from those commodities go. Do they go almost entirely to the corporations and the owners of the corporations that produce them, or should they go equally to the countries that produce them? And that was a real threat, of course, to those in America and elsewhere that profited from the production of oil and other raw materials. So they had to start thinking seriously after the Second World War about how to talk about the relationship and how to address these demands for a radical reorientation of how wealth was earned from commodities and a redistribution of that wealth. So the question was how to do that. And one of the ways to do that was to instead to talk about something called development. So in other words, not to talk about redistribution of wealth, but to talk about somehow leaving the distribution the way it was, but helping countries of the South somehow to catch up. And they would catch up not by being given redistributed wealth, but by being given some kind of expertise. And that was essentially what development was about. That there was the secret to becoming rich was expertise. And the West would try and share some of its expertise. And that gave rise to this whole belief in something called development. And it could be configured that way as this expertise because of a particular field of expertise that had come into being in this period around the end of the Second World War in the middle of the 20th century. And this was this new expertise about an object called the economy. And one of the things I show in the book is that before the 1940s, no economist believed in the existence of something called the economy. They had older ways of thinking about wealth and about business cycles and about all kinds of things that economists were concerned with in the 1920s and so on. But for a variety of reasons, it becomes possible in the 1930s, particularly the 1940s, to calculate the existence of this new sort of totality that they label the economy and to count not wealth, which is what they'd been interested in counting before, but rather the sort of circulation of funds within national spaces. And that's how the economy was thought of. And having figured out how they could do that, they could then talk about the economy as something that would grow. And that solved a problem because it wasn't clear before when you talked about wealth increasing. There were obviously sort of material limits, but the economy was something that was somehow sort of immaterial. It was this phenomenon of money moving between accounts, and it could therefore didn't seem to be any limits to its growth. So you could actually organize all of politics, both national politics, but also international politics around this new goal that was called growth, growth measured as the increasing size of this economy, which was not something getting physically bigger, but was this increased turnover and 
movement of funds measured in new ways using things like GDP. So that is where it became possible to think about the problem of the global south in terms of expertise and development because if the US and Britain and other countries now had this new thing they thought of as the economy, then Egypt and India and every other country of the South could be thought of as having something called the economy, which was this discrete little entity that everybody had one of. So there wasn't this sort of global interconnected world. There were separate things called economies. And economies could be made to grow if you just had the right policies in place for doing things the way the West had done them. So it was this very bizarre way of thinking, but it gave rise to this entire industry called development. It had another connection with oil, because if you were suddenly going to start thinking about politics as development, politics as growth of this thing called the economy, you had this sort of future projected forward as of just unlimited growth. Now, in one way, you'd sort of dematerialize this because you were thinking in these sort of financial and technical terms about growth, what growth was. But it was still this very bizarre idea that somehow going forward forever, in economic terms, there could be this growth, this ever-increasing material wealth and well-being. And I think one of the reasons it became possible to think in this strange new way was because this was a period when one of the most essential items of the material increase in well-being was suddenly available in vast quantities, and that's energy. Because as the U.S. and other companies start opening up and finally developing these new sources of oil after World War II, energy does become available, oil in particular, at an unprecedented rate. And at a rate that, despite all the efforts of the oil companies to keep the price of oil up, actually declines in cost in real terms for several decades until the 1970s. So there's a particular way in which this enormous availability of fossil fuels in the middle decades of the 20th century sort of underwrites this whole idea of development, of growth, of a future that is somehow seen as just ever-expanding material resources in a very new kind of way. I wanted to back up and make a point that you can't really discuss the economy without looking back at our money system and how it just developed back at the end of World War II. So the United States came out of World War II as a disproportionate amount of power in the world and political power as well as production power. Europe was destroyed. All the production in Europe had been decimated by the war. Right. And we come into this new era where the United States is in big-time control of the world. They structured this agreement called the Bretton Woods Agreement in 1944 and now in international finance. It takes a big-time turn. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, after the war, it's true. The U.S. has this huge advantage in material wealth and it's producing most of the world's oil and so on. But it also faces this problem because it wants to prevent the kind of collapse of the international system that had happened in the interwar system and that had led to the rise of fascism and the sort of spiral that had led to a world war and to 50 million people dead. And one of the, the dominant ideas about the causes of the Second World War, and it's probably a fairly accurate one, the problem was the bankers. The problem in the interwar period had been the fact that bankers in the West started to speculate in currencies in an uncontrolled way. And this had led to incredible instability in patterns of international finance. One by one, countries had been forced to abandon what was called the gold standard, the notion that their national currencies had value because they were based on reserves of gold. 
and the speculative actions of the bankers gradually destroyed the financial systems of countries. And as the financial systems collapsed, then it became impossible for people to organize productive life and to grow things and sell things and so on. And that had what led to the collapse of democracies in Europe and the rise of fascism and the path to war. So the question, this was quite clear if you look at the speeches of leading political figures in the US after World War II is, how do we rein in the bankers? And it's a question that, of course, is around today again. You have these bankers with this astonishing power to trade in international currencies, in, in the national currencies of different countries, to speculate in them because of that, because they sort of treat currencies as though they were a commodity that you buy and sell and, and, and try and make money out of. You turn the financial system of a country into this target of speculative behavior, which then wreaks absolute havoc. And we've seen that recently since the 2008 financial disaster with a whole series of speculative financial moves against the economies of Europe. And this was a very live issue after World War II. How do we prevent that happening? How do we put in place a new financial system? They couldn't go back to the old gold standard that had failed of basing everybody's currencies on reserves of gold, partly because all the gold was in the U.S., because countries that were fighting the war had, had had to buy things from the U.S. and had bought them by shipping all their gold to America. So America had most of the world's gold. So instead, they based the international financial system essentially on the dollar. The dollar technically was based on those U.S. reserves of gold. But the way the world the system worked in practice was that countries needed to trade with the U.S. And more specifically, they needed to do one thing. They needed to buy oil. Oil was by far the largest commodity in world trade. It was this now essential source of energy alongside coal. In fact, it was beginning to surpass coal as a source of energy. And everybody had to buy it. Most countries didn't produce it. And you either had to buy it from the U.S. or in most cases, if you bought it from anywhere else, you had to buy it in U.S. money. So even if you were buying from, say, Indonesia, whether when that was a Dutch colony or when it became an independent state, and you were, say, a country in Africa or if you were India or somewhere, you couldn't buy it in your own currency. You couldn't buy it in the currency of Indonesia. You had to buy it in American money. And so everybody needed dollars. And that need through oil for dollars was what supported the value of the dollar enabled it to work as the sort of anchor of the new global financial system after World War II. That all begins to collapse or be under enormous pressure by the later part of the 1960s because what begins to happen is that more and more oil is being produced and one of the places it's being produced is in the Middle East place where there's not much industry at that point and where it's difficult in the local economies to spend all the income that is being earned. And so there's this huge accumulation of oil income, petrodollars as it's called, and the dollar, what happens to those dollars starts to be a factor that's destabilizing this dollar-based international financial system by the 1960s. Also, the value of the dollar is starting to decline because of inflation and so on. So there's other problems, but it's very oil-linked to the kind of international financial system that emerges and that is eventually in crisis by about 1970, 1972, 3, 4, and so on. And now we're in a post-Bretton Woods system, and I'm wondering what the currency system created by steam power and coal really looked like because their system now is very much an oil system. Back in the 19th century, there was really only one country on the gold standard, and that was Britain. 
And there's an interesting history that I go into in the book between the relationship between steam power and the sort of development of the British currency as a, a currency that can be based on reserves of gold. One of the things you have to be able to do is you have to be able to print money, uh, mint money, let's say, before the days of paper money. And you needed steam power to be able to do that on an effective scale. So I talk about the way there was a particular relationship, again, between carbon energy in that case, coal and the a global financial system in the 19th century. Different again, and I just talked about the one relating to oil in the 20th century. In a certain sense, that oil-based system, at least in the fairly easy way in which it worked, or at least easier way in which it worked in the post-war decades, that had collapsed by the 1970s. And after the 1970s, and particularly as one gets towards the end of the 20th century, one returns to a system in which there's no standard on which the value of currencies are based. They become these speculative commodities in which banks trade and try to make profits. And we return to a system of enormously unstable speculative trading by the banks in, in national currencies, as well as an increasing number of other things that are treated as speculative commodities, chief among them actually oil itself. And it becomes enormously destabilizing for countries around the world. And one gets from the 1980s onwards a series of extraordinary currency crises in different parts of the world at different times that come out of that. So we're not really based on an oil system anymore since the 1980s, based on this system of speculators that are once again uh, fairly out of control. We really are shifting into a different oil regime because the cost of producing and the cost of buying oil is so much higher than at the birth of the oil system in, in the early 20th century and late 19th century. And now we see one of the major problems of depending so heavily on a fossil fuel system with climate change being continually developed as a science with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and the Rio Summit in 92, where nations around the world are really addressing this issue of climate change. But there's nothing that's similar of a science of peak oil or of energy depletion. There's really a political movement on the issue of climate change, but not really for energy depletion. Why is that the case? Right. Well, and of course, these two issues interact because, I mean, we haven't got time to go into the, the history of climate change, but that is the parallel history to everything we've been talking about, that while all that carbon was being brought up out of the ground in the form of coal and oil and burnt, it was ending up in the atmosphere and producing what threatened to be these irreversible and catastrophic changes to the global climate and to the very possibility of forms of collective life on Earth. And we shouldn't forget that, that other whole story that is also there in the book. But it is curious that as levels of CO2 in the atmosphere and the general problem of climate change became a topic of public concern, that happened to coincide with the fact that this era of fossil fuels was entering a new stage. And I talked about the transition from a period when oil was incredibly cheap, incredibly easy to produce through much of the 20th century to a different situation today where we've reached a point where more than half, it seems about half or more than half of the easy oil, the stuff that comes out of the ground relatively easily and cheaply, has been produced and less and less of the conventional oil, as it's called, is available each year. So the conventional oil that flows from existing wells is declining so fast that the oil companies have to bring online the equivalent of a new Saudi Arabia every three years just to keep up the level of production, assuming we wanted to keep up the level of production because of the political obstacles, some of them organized by the oil companies, to put in place to uh, preventing a transition to 
renewable energies the world at present does think it needs to keep producing more and more oil and it can't at least of the conventional so one of the things it's had to do is find these new sources of oil unconventional oil things like the bitumen in canada that's was started to be called oil sands oil very deep offshore in places like the gulf of mexico which gives rise to disasters like the Deepwater horizon catastrophe or these new so-called shale oil or tight oil, oil that is not in conventional oil reservoirs, but is just trapped in cracks in forms of shale. Now, because of all this, this difficulty of producing oil has caused the price of oil to increase fourfold in the last few years. It's actually produced a perverse result in the U.S., which is that these unconventional oils, and particularly the tight oil in the shale formations, that nobody bothered to produce before, suddenly become economic to produce. And this has produced a, a mini-boom. And the oil produced from shale, it's produced the largest increase in energy production in the U.S. in the country's history. It's going to be short-lived because the oil produced from shale declines in availability very, very rapidly. But it's produced this impression that there's no such thing as a problem of peak oil, which is rather misleading. It's also produced something else. Like any other boom, it lends itself to financial speculation. And following the 2008 financial crash, Wall Street, of course, was looking for something other than subprime mortgages to invest its money in. And it found it in this shale boom. Buying up oil and gas leases in the U.S. is now the single largest land use in the continental U.S. in the lower 48 states. More land is leased to oil and gas production than any other use of land. And then it's planted in corn or wheat or anything else like that. It's 10% of the land area. And of course, phenomenal opportunity for banks, now that they couldn't play with subprime mortgages so easily, to invest, to speculate, to draw in investors and so on. So there's been something of a, of a renewed uh, sort of financial bubble around these shales that is probably going to be relatively short-lived. So as oil prices become more and more unaffordable and it becomes really unaffordable to produce oil, it's inevitable that we'll see a change in business as usual in Washington and across the country, across the world. And especially in the United States, which is a country that has risen to power on the back of cheap and available energy. What politics will emerge, do you think, at the end of oil? Will it benefit the right or the left or neither? Will we see a new party emerge to cope with this new landscape of expensive energy? Well, I, mean, I think it's important to say first that we're not there yet. Oil has become much, much more expensive, but energy is still relatively cheap in the U.S. And of course, the U.S. benefits from being an oil producer, an enormous gas producer, I mean, in a way that other countries don't. It does mean that people are using less gasoline in their cars and switching from the use of oil to the use of natural gas for some uses and from coal to natural gas and so on. So there are changes taking place. But at the same time, the problem is the fossil fuel companies, they're in big trouble with the transition to renewable energy. And they're by far, by far the largest companies on Wall Street. So the amount of capital invested in them, which is capital invested and whose value depends on the fact that all that remaining oil is going to be brought out of the ground. They have a tremendous interest in continuing to keep the country dependent on fossil fuels, which is why you see these enormous battles from funded by people like the Koch brothers, who are oil refiners, oil producers, to fund things like the Keystone XL pipeline and so on, to keep America dependent on fossil fuels. So it's a little too early to be talking in the case of the US about any quick transition under the current situation to renewable energies, unlike the situation in countries where the local politics is not dominated by fossil fuel companies, places like Scandinavia and Germany, which are moving very rapidly along the path to renewables. Still not rapidly enough, probably, for the climate, but a completely different story from the US. So I think it's important to remember that there's a big battle still ahead. That said, 
again, I don't think one can predict the form of politics or the rise or fall of particular parties simply from the kind of energy. I do think, though, we now understand that these issues are absolutely central. And although the oil lobbyists, you know, and I mentioned people like the Koch brothers, the biggest billionaire funders of the right in the US, people forget that this is the oil industry, that these are people who make most of their money out of the oil industry. And there are stories even today about them forming new sort of astroturf kind of grassroots, fake grassroots organizations to advance their agenda and to try and revive the fortunes of, of the Republican right in the US. That this is energy politics at work. This is the fossil fuel lobby working very, very hard to to keep business as usual. And rather than sort of thinking ahead to the future, to what the world might be like, I think we have to realize that the battle is actually very much ongoing in the present. I wanted to close out by just asking how some of the forces that are at play right now with energy depletion will will reshape governments because we're hitting a point where the recent oil shock from really 2006, 2007 to now is about three times the impact of that 1973, 1974 oil shock that resonates so heavily in the memory uh, of the world. And the story of the United States has been one of empire that has developed from oil and used it to strike a global political empire as well. And now that oil is hitting that bumpy plateau, it seems like so is the United States. And with oil in decline sometime in the future, it would make sense that the U.S. would be in decline at that point. Do you think there would be a Berlin Wall type moment for the U.S. empire? Maybe the change in structure in the Middle East as we know it today, or has something like that even already started? I think it's already started. And I think in some ways, the recent history of the last decade or more of the U.S. in the Middle East is very much a, a sign of that bumpy hegemony. So that, for example, the, its inability to keep its dictatorial friends in power in the face of the Arab revolutionary movements of uh, 2011, 2012, but also going back even to the Iraq war and the, the decision by the U.S. to invade Iraq was a sign not of the sort of absolute power of the U.S., but rather of its continually weakening position. But of course, that weakening position was possible to use it to sort of pretend that the government of Iraq represented some kind of mortal threat to the US and therefore this ultimately failed effort had to be launched to remake the politics of the region through an invasion of Iraq. But I also think it's important to remember that one of the things that drove the Iraq war in terms of domestic US politics was not directly the interests of the oil companies. They probably knew you couldn't actually invade Iraq and get your hands on its oil. I and mean, that's proved to be the case. But what grew up alongside oil interests in the U.S., which was the arms companies, both those who manufacture weapons and all the consulting and service firms that are dependent upon this extraordinarily militarized society that the U.S. has become. And that has a very specific relationship to the history of oil in the Middle East because in the 60s, 70s onwards, as more of the oil income began to be shared by the producer countries, there was this problem of all those dollars building up that I mentioned before in relation to the stability of the and role of the dollar in international finance. But it had another effect was that for the international financial system to work, those dollars had to be brought back to the US. In other words, the oil producing countries had to buy things from America. The trouble is there's so much money involved in oil that there's almost nothing you can buy if you're a relatively small oil producing state that would possibly be the equivalent of all the income you're getting from oil. Because you can only import so many cars and so many construction materials. You don't need more than a certain number, even at a very high level of luxury. So they had to find something that didn't have those kinds of physical limits. 
And what they came up with, the solution to that, was weapons. And weapons were very useful because well, you can just keep buying more of them because you, they're not something like clothes or food or cars that you sort of use up in a certain time. You just have more and more and more of them. So the whole history of oil and oil in the Middle East got tied up with this American military complex of arms manufacturing, arms exports, arms experts, and all that. And that, unfortunately, is not in decline. It's in threat, but it's still part of a very central part of American politics. And so although oil itself is going to be in decline, the military complex that built up around oil, unfortunately, is going to try to find ways to keep going. And that's going to continue to shape the politics of the Middle East if we're not careful. liquidity problem solved, your debts wiped away, your arthritis, your achy bones made to feel like those of a young child, your student debt erased, your dust bowls bowled over and turned into fertile soil, this cure can do everything. My name's Dr. P. Enchin and I'm here with my esteemed colleague, Dr. H.E. Edgefund, and we've developed an innovative new medicinal technique to take all your bad debts, your bad ills, your bad problems, mix it in together with a magical mystery cure, and it'll all go away. Tell them about it, Dr. H.E. Edgefund. That's right, Dr. P.E. Enchin. We have a miracle cure. We take an itty bitty 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 debt and we mix it into all this liquidity. Mix it up real good and shake it up. Shake it up. And we put it in these fancy looking bottles and we give it to the people. We call it quantitative homeopathy because what we're doing is we're creating a little bit of the thing you don't want, which is all this debt, and we're mixing it in with all the liquidity and then we shake it, shake it up till it's full of homeless people. Dr. Engine, what does that stuff in the bottle actually do to you? What it'll actually do is it'll take all your problems and it'll make you forget about them. Completely cured. Quantitative homeopathy is an excellent way to erase all those debts by mixing it in with tons of really good quality liquidity here and then it'll just disappear. Anyone want to try it in front of the crowd in order to show everyone how amazing it is? Me, 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 oh, me, little me, boy, me. little boy, come on over here, come on over here. Okay, Dr. Enchin, I would love to try your miracle cure. Now, what's been ailing you, Sonny? Well, I have headaches and a whole lot of student debt. My mommy was flattened by a land baron who took over my house and built a railroad. <laughs> well, that sounds pretty mean of that land baron, but I think I got something that can cure you. Shake that up, Dr. Edgefun, and give it to this little boy. Try this miracle cure, it's sure to fix what ails you, boy. I see blue. I, I, I see green. I see whole lots of green. Oh, my. 
As you can see, the boy is experiencing what is commonly known as delusion. A whole lot of delusion. He's not going to remember that debt no more. He not only has forgotten that he's in debt and that his family's whole livelihood's been destroyed by the wealthy land barons, but he's also forgotten his identity, where he's getting his food from, and his mother's name. It's an amazing cure, and we call it quantitative homeopathy. Get your bullshit cure. We don't need that guy to finish in our town. This has been the end of Side 1, Disc 1 of Important Moments in Monetary Policy History. Please flip this disc over for more on special cures for your bank's case of dysentery. Listening to episode number 69 of the Extra Environmentalist. And today we're speaking with Richard Heinberg about his new book, Snake Oil How Fracking's False Promise of Plenty Imperils Our Future. Peak oil is kryptonite to the oil industry. That's because if policymakers and ordinary citizens really took peak oil seriously, everybody would be making extraordinary efforts to reduce our reliance on petroleum. We'd be driving much more efficient cars. Governments, instead of building more highways, would be building more public transit systems, more bike lanes, and so on. And the oil industry just does not want that. <laughs> I've, I've heard people say, oh, well, peak oil is just a conspiracy by the oil industry to raise prices. But I've been in this for years and years. I have seen no evidence of that whatsoever. What I see all the time is people within the oil industry who are technical people, geologists and engineers, once they retire and they feel safe to talk, they'll say, hey, look, you know, our supply situation is really perilous and somebody should be talking about this. But the people in the front office, the public relations guys and the economists, they all are constantly saying peak oil is garbage, peak oil's dead, you know, they're talking it down every opportunity they have because it's just economic bad news for their industry. So what is it that we can even say to them that would jumpstart this idea? I mean, can they move into a new kind of energy production? Are they locked into only oil? I'm talking yeah, they, about the people who are making the oil and gas right now. Yeah, they've locked themselves into oil and gas. I mean, that is their business, and they've made it clear. I mean, a few years ago, Chevron and BP were making big noises about getting into renewable energy, and BP rebranded itself as Beyond Petroleum. But most of those investments in renewables have fallen by the wayside, and Exxon is really the most brazen about it. They say, we're a fossil fuel company, always have been, always will be, period, end of story. And realistically, that is their game plan, that's their business model, and we're not going to convince them either to change that business model or to change their message. 
So when I talk about peak oil, I'm not talking to the oil industry. I'm not trying to get them to change. I'm talking to policymakers and ordinary citizens. Those are the people that we need to reach and whose behavior needs to change. Since we last had you on our show a few years ago when your book, The End of Growth, came out, the amount of hype and press about the shale oil production that has been happening in the United States has been huge. And there's been a plethora of articles saying that peak oil is dead and there's no such thing as peak oil. And look, we were right all along. We don't have to worry about it. Can you kind of recap what's happened over the last few years since your last book came out? Let me start a little bit earlier than that. In uh, 2003, when my first book came out on this subject, uh, the party's over. I happened to go back to the first edition of that book recently and reread it for the first time in years. And, you know, it's actually interesting because in the book, I cite Colin Campbell and Jean Laherere, the two veteran petroleum geologists who really got me thinking about peak oil back in the late 1990s. And they were saying from the late 90s onward that the peak in regular conventional oil would probably be around 2006 or so, and that price of oil would be bid higher, and that would bring a lot of unconventional production on. And the peak in all petroleum liquids probably wouldn't happen until around 2015 or so. And, you know, that seems like it's absolutely spot on. That's exactly what we're seeing, regular conventional oil minus deep water minus tar sands minus tide oil has been in decline since about 2006. And U.S. tight oil, which is basically what's keeping world production growing right now, is going to turn over around 2017 or so. And even before that, declines in other parts of the world are likely to cause the bottom to fall out. So around 2015 to 2017 is still a really good forecast for peak in all petroleum liquids. So, you know, the, those who say that the peak oil thesis has been disproven really haven't even looked at it to know what it's saying. Over the last 10 years, the price of oil has skyrocketed. None of the peak oil critics forecast that. Over the past 10 years, the oil industry has had to invest twice as much in exploration and production as it had previously in inflation-adjusted dollars. Over the last 10 years, the oil industry has drilled twice as many wells as it did previously on an annual basis. Over the last 10 years, the oil industry has taken on far more debt because they're producing oil from much more expensive geological formations to tap. Over the last 10 years, the top 10 oil companies, and we're talking about BP and Exxon, Shell, Chevron, etc. The top 10 oil companies have seen falling production, that their production has fallen by about 25% since a decade ago. So this is peak oil in action. This is exactly what you would expect to see if you took the forecasts of the peak oilers from the late 1990s, if you took those seriously. What we're talking about now is the shale oil and gas. And there, you know, the forecasts really diverge pretty dramatically. The The industry is saying that uh, the U.S. is going to become the next Saudi Arabia and that we have 100 years of cheap natural gas ahead of us. We crunched the numbers ourselves at Post Carbon Institute. What we did was purchase the rights to the data on over 60,000 oil wells that have been horizontally drilled and fracked 
over the past few years. We looked at initial production rates. We looked at how production declines over time in each of these wells. We looked at the geographic location of the wells. What we found is that in each of the the geological formations, the plays where this stuff is being produced, there's a small core area or sweet spot, usually only a few counties in extent, where production is prolific and profitable. But those are being drilled out really quickly, and you get outside of those sweet spots, and initial production rates are lower, and the rate of decline in production is very rapid, often 60 to 80% in the first year. So what this tells us is that the forecasts of Saudi America and 100 years of natural gas really aren't based on good data. That's not going to happen. What we're going to see instead is U.S. production of tight oil and shale gas start to decline well before 2020. And again, that flies in the face of the forecasts that have been made by the industry and that have been taken up by policymakers. I mean, even President Obama has said that we have 100 years of natural gas. Well, this is highly misleading and it's creating bad energy policy. And that's the snake oil in the title of my book. I've sat down with people who have bought into the shale oil and the Saudi America hype, and they've said to me, Justin, we don't have to worry about peak oil now because there's so much oil out there that's available. And what's really a statistic that someone who's sitting down in a conversation like that can pull out and say, no, actually, peak oil is a very real phenomenon, and here's one of the ways to indicate that it's actually happening? Well, one thing is with shale gas, for example, there are only a few important geological formations from which it's being produced. Haynesville, the Barnett, the Eagle Ford, the Woodford, the Marcellus, and a couple of others. Of those, only the Marcellus is currently seeing increasing production. In all of those other plays, the Barnett was really the first one to be exploited. The core areas have been drilled out. And so even if companies go in and start drilling more, they'll be drilling in peripheral regions where decline rates are very high. Uh, So production rates in all of those plays are falling now, except for the Marcellus, which was late to be exploited. And this is peak oil in action. It's happening actually faster with the shale gas and tight oil formations than it does with conventional plays because the decline rates are so savage When you have production from each well declining that fast, that means you have to drill more and more wells all the time just to keep production steady, much less to grow it. So yes, we are still seeing increased production in the Bakken in North Dakota and the Eagle Ford in South Texas. We are still seeing increasing gas production in the Marcellus, but this is only going to be another two, three, four years. It's going to turn around and, you know, where will these profits be then who've been telling us about this wondrous new production potential? Are they going to be eating crow or will they be very quietly sitting on the sidelines or or trumpeting some new boondoggle? (laughs) So realistically... A hundred years is really not that long, and maybe one or two generations. The real question, I think, is what happens next? What's coming next? Your forecasts from the 90s are really accurate. What do the forecasters say about what's coming next? For natural gas, the picture does not look good for the U.S. The U.S. is still a net natural gas importer. We import natural gas from Canada. Canada's supply of natural gas is gradually declining. Once production from the shale plays starts to decline in the U.S., 
we're going to see really substantial overall natural gas production declines because conventional natural gas in the U.S. has been declining for years. And it was the shale plays that sort of saved our bacon over the last few years and drove prices down. As a result of having lower natural gas prices, you know, everybody was saying, well, now we can drive our vehicles burning natural gas. We can use natural gas instead of coal to generate electricity. The chemicals industry can come back to the U.S. because we have such cheap gas. Well, that's turned out to be a short-term phenomenon because the industry actually can't operate with current natural gas prices. It doesn't pay to go out and drill more because they're losing money on every cubic foot of gas they produce. So they're doing everything they can to raise the price of gas right now by holding off on drilling in some cases, but more so by trying to export gas to other countries. See, places like Japan and South Korea and Europe will pay a lot more for natural gas. So if they can build export terminals and start selling this stuff via LNG tankers, then that'll push up the price for natural gas here in the U.S. Of course, what that will do is destroy the U.S. chemicals industry again, cause the power industry to go back to burning coal. And everybody's going to wonder what the hell happened. You know, we were promised 100 years of cheap natural gas, and it turned out to be like five or 10 years instead. Now, you mentioned earlier how the policy community has bought into the idea of having access to this cheap natural gas for the foreseeable future. And so a lot of decisions are being made at the moment that have very long-term consequences associated with lock in effects to natural gas infrastructure or export infrastructure, as you were just mentioning. What are some of the long-term consequences that are occurring because of these decisions being made now? The export terminals are a good example, as you say, because billions of dollars are going to be invested in building these terminals. And by the time they're up and running, we won't have the extra gas to export there'll be white elephants, you know, it's just a colossal waste of money and infrastructure. The same thing with the chemicals plants that are being demothballed right now. Companies like DuPont and Dow moved away from the U.S. because natural gas was getting so expensive back in the 2000s. And so that now with cheap gas, they've moved back. And the irony is now they're in front of Congress arguing against natural gas export terminals, as are the utilities, which have been burning natural gas instead of coal. But here we have U.S. energy policy that's basically been bet on this natural gas boom. We have new coal regulations coming in for new coal power plants with the EPA that they're not going to be able to meet because carbon capture and storage is just impractical and too expensive. The only thing they're going to be able to do is to run the current coal power plants at full steam and burn natural gas for peaking purposes because natural gas is going to be too expensive. It just throws all of our national energy policy into the waste bin. We should be and should have been building a lot more renewable energy capacity. And if we had done that, if we still do it, we'll be in much better shape. But the oil and gas industry is really to blame here for all of this hype that they've put out about natural gas. I'm wondering about what's happening with fracking and how it's affecting communities. And there's, a, can you talk a little bit about the impacts and the psychology about what's happening around the communities where fracking is actually occurring? You know, the industry prefers to drill in poorer communities for tactical reasons. People in poor communities desperately need the income. They need the jobs, they need the production royalties, the lease fees, and so on. So 
if you drill in a poor community, then even if something goes wrong, if there are environmental and health impacts, people are likely not to talk about it very much because if the drillers leave town, then so does all the money. So there's that. And then there's also the question of what happens if if somebody does have a bad health impact or or their water is polluted. What happens is the companies make a settlement. They make a big payout to the people affected. And along with that is always a non-disclosure agreement so that the folks who, who sign on the dotted line can never talk about it. That's why the industry is able to get away with saying that, hey, there have been no documented instances of polluted wells from this and so on. Well, actually there have, but most of the instances where this has happened, the people involved have not been able to talk about it because they basically they can't afford to. I had a question about why it is that so many activists who are very focused on the terrible consequences of climate change have misunderstood a lot of what's going on in relation to shale gas and shale oil and tight oil. So a lot of climate activists have minimized the dialogue around peak oil. So why is it so difficult to understand what's going on in relation to the current oil boom that's underway? The analysts who have done the numbers are few and far between. There's Dave Hughes with Post Carbon Institute. There's Art Berman, who's an independent petroleum geologist down in, in Texas. And Bill Powers, who's written a book on the subject, who's a, an energy analyst. And there aren't that many more that I can point a finger to. I mean, they've done really good analysis. And Dave Hughes' analysis on this, for example, is probably the most comprehensive that's ever been done, including by the International Energy Agency and the U.S. Department of Energy. And it's available, by the way, as a free PDF download. It's about 180 pages long. You can download it from shalebubble.org and read it for yourself. It's a comprehensive piece of work. But who hears about it? What people hear about is the, the commercials on radio and television and NPR and, and uh, the ads in newspapers and magazines from the natural gas industry all telling us, you know, this major PR effort telling us that, that we have this abundance of the fuel and don't worry, be happy, go to sleep, uh, drive on. We've all got it taken care of. And I had a question here about environmental organizations and why they have spoken support for natural gas as a bridge fuel. Yeah, I wanted to address that. You know, everyone is desperate to reduce carbon emissions. And if natural gas produces fewer emissions than coal, coal is like the worst of the fossil fuels. So anything we can do to reduce our coal consumption, well, that's a, a step in the right direction. So if suddenly we have 100 years of cheap natural gas, well, that's good news for the climate. That gives us some breathing room, some time, a few decades in which to build out our renewable energy infrastructure. So some of the big climate organizations have basically signed on and said, yeah, we support fracked shale gas because that helps us achieve our climate objectives. And I think the U.S. federal government is basically towing the same line. The EPA, which should be warning us about the environmental dangers of fracking, the air quality and water quality issues, the human health impacts and so on. The L.A. Times published an article about three weeks ago revealing evidence that EPA field scientists had good evidence linking fracking with serious water quality issues, but their higher ups in Washington at the EPA basically deep-sixed that data. Oh, wow. They put it in a, a locker and, 
and threw away the key. Well, why would that be? It's because everyone is so concerned about climate. And the only way the U.S. is able to make you know, substantial progress in reducing its carbon emissions over the short term is by burning less coal and more natural gas. So people like Obama and the EPA and the big environmental organizations are coming down on the side of the natural gas industry. But if you understand the the short-term nature of this, the bubble-like nature of this natural gas boom, then it's not a bridge fuel at all. It's, it's a bridge to nowhere. All these people who say that peak oil doesn't exist and that these long-term implications of peak oil are not very serious. And these are perhaps family members, friends who who don't really understand the, the gravity of the situation. I'm wondering what a society ends up looking like that goes through this peak oil crisis. I mean, you can't drive your car anymore, obviously, and plane travel becomes a, a thing of the past. And actually, a 24-hour energy world becomes something that's a little bit hard to, to do as well. Right. What, what does a society look like that hits this? Yeah, well, those are long-term outcomes. Over the short term, over the next few years, what we're likely to see is just more volatile energy prices and a contraction in oil production that starts to drive certain industries toward the edge. The airline industry isn't going to fold up and go away overnight. They'll just downsize. They've already started downsizing over the last few years just as a result of the high oil prices that we have seen and are currently still seeing. But that process is going to speed up the experience of, you know, being able to go to the airport and have a cheap comfortable flight to almost any destination on earth, that's going to gradually wind down. Farmers are going to find it more and more difficult to pay for the, the fossil fuels to run their farm machinery and the inputs and, and so on. And the financial system is going to get hammered because as all of these other things happen with trade and transport, that ultimately impacts the financial system as well. So a peak oil world looks basically like what we've seen since 2008, only worse and getting worse all the time. It doesn't have to be that way. If we plan for this, if we take these warnings seriously and start to voluntarily change our transport infrastructure, reduce our reliance on oil, change our agricultural model toward a, a more localized and organic model, then we can weather this inevitable transition and actually come out the other side better off. That's not the direction we're going right now, except in some communities that are taking steps and, and some smaller organizations. But if you look at national policy and global policy, it ain't happening. So as a last question today, I wanted to ask what it is that no one's really talking about when it comes to looking at the whole fracking issue that maybe you came across when you were writing Snake Oil. And also, if you could talk a little bit about who the book was written for and also how communities are fighting back. Yeah. Well, the book is largely written for people who are out in the in the fracking land, I guess you could call it, where this stuff is happening and are trying to do something to rein in the companies that are doing this. And there are hundreds of small environmental organizations that have sprung up almost overnight. And these are not big professional environmental organizations. And the people involved are not professional environmentalists. They're people who are being directly impacted by the noise, the smell, the bad air, the, the bad water. 
and they're seeing what's happening to their community economically and environmentally, and they're getting together and trying to do what they can. And I want to give them some ammunition, not only the evidence of environmental impacts from fracking, but also the lousy economics of it. They need to understand, for example, that almost none of these companies are actually making money right now on sales of product. I'm talking particularly here about the natural gas producers. It's a Ponzi scheme. They've paid a lot to lease millions of acres of land for drilling. And they've talked up the value of those leases by saying that we have 100 years of natural gas. And so now they're selling off those leases in order to make a profit and stay in business. Instead of making profit on selling natural gas, they're profiting from mergers and acquisitions and lease sales. And the industry is a financial bubble in the classic sense. It's like the real estate bubble of a few years back and the dot-com bubble a few years before that. And that bubble is popping. As we read that Shell, for example, is writing down $2 billion worth of shale assets that it purchased from some of these smaller companies, that's just the tip of the iceberg. It's happening with company after company. And this whole industry is ready to pop. And activists need to know that because that's some really powerful information to have on their side. This old rig's getting shaky, this old rig's getting old. This old rig lets in the rain and this old rig lets in the cold. But I guess it ain't no wonder cause it's 29 below. Then I'm going back to Texas soon as I make just one more hole. Ain't gonna need this rig no longer, ain't gonna need this rig no more. Ain't got time to wash the drawers, ain't got time to wash the floor. Ain't got time to all them motors, nor to mend no spinning chains. Ain't gonna need this rig no longer, I'm getting ready to make a change. And that closes out our conversations with Tim Mitchell and Richard Heinberg about the history of the 20th century and oil and coal. And one thing that just blew me away in talking to Tim Mitchell is considering that there was a time in human history when we didn't have an idea of the economy. And it seems like it's the goal of so many politicians now of talking about the economy and the health of the economy. But there used to not be the economy. It was it was something else. There was economic activity, there were businesses, and there was, you know, goods and services being moved, but there wasn't an abstract idea of an economy that could just keep growing forever that could be healthy or sick on its own. For people living in our time, economy has kind of become a buzzword to represent the health of our society. What's happening in our in our world? Is it going is it going well or is it going poorly? And that can all be determined by the health of the economy. Are we spending enough to make our economy grow, as the politicians tell us to do, or are we not? And this is something that has, is very new and has been in large part been perpetuated by the use of these fossil fuels and uh, coal and, and gas in particular. And I think a realization is starting to hit in a lot of even mainstream economists that economic growth is not coming back in the way it used to. And you see this with one of the articles that Josh shared on our Facebook page, and it's called Krugman Goes Splat, and it's actually written by Richard Heinberg, and it's on resilience.org. And it's basically Richard's commentary on Paul Krugman's recent op-ed in the New York Times called A Permanent Slump, where he's basically saying very similar things to what Richard Heinberg said in his book, The End of Growth, 
where Larry Summers got up at a recent IMF conference and started talking about uh, all the headwinds to growth and why, you know, we may not necessarily be able to grow our economies like we used to. And because Larry Summers is a well-respected person inside of the world of people that economists respect, and he's saying this sort of thing, then maybe there's some actual truth to it, even though it totally ignores all the people who have been making that case for many, many years from ecological economics, from peak oil, from the biophysical economic side of the world. And I think that because no matter what happens with quantitative easing, all of these policies that have been trying to stimulate the economy and nothing's working, economists are starting to begin to figure out that maybe their models aren't working the way that they used to. Maybe, you know, this whole world that we discussed with Timothy Mitchell today that used really easy to get oil and relatively easy to get coal at the early 20th century to create our political systems and our societies, that era is gone and it's not coming back, although they haven't necessarily made the connection to the oil side yet. And when you have a whole system that's based on abundant oil, that's based on abundant coal and cheap energy that funds the food system, that funds our transportation system, that funds our whole foreign policy pretty much, it's hard to imagine a world that doesn't rely on these, uh, these large cheap energy inputs that we have for so long and in most of our remembered history based most of our decisions on. And this is in government. This is in economy. This is in business. This is in most of the, the parts of life that we, we interact with. And it comes back to the theme that we discuss on long-term thinking and how political and social systems have really very little capacity for long-term thinking. I was listening to a talk by Terrence McKenna the other day, and I heard this little a story that he told that really illustrated long-term thinking. And I just wanted to play it here, and we'll link to it in the show. We tend to operate along very short-term goals. It's very hard for us to put in place a project that uh, looks 40 or 50 uh, years ahead. It was interesting, a couple of years ago there was an article in the Whole Earth Review about uh, uh, a chapel at Oxford that uh, the, the main beam of this chapel, which was an oak beam about so by so, uh, was rotted through with worms and had to be replaced. And it was no problem because 800 years ago, an English king planted an oak tree that was to be grown for the specific purpose of replacing this beam when it should need to be replaced. And so this 750-year-old oak tree was cut and the beam hewn and put into place. And uh, the, it inspired them to plant another oak tree, <laughs> which uh, is not a bad idea. And that's the kind of long-term thinking that we're absolutely not using in any of our institutions or uh, political decisions today because we're just focused on the short term. Imagine thinking 400 years in the, he uh, in the future where, you know, our, our children look back at something and they're like, oh, this building's falling apart. And they're like, oh, don't worry. This whole area of this whole forest was set aside specifically to, you know, do this particular thing. Where do we want to be in 100 years? Where do we want our great, great grandchildren to be in, you know, four or five generations? What, what, what do we want our world to look like? 
And this is the kind of vision that our political leaders need to have. And we don't get that. Yeah. And does it really matter if tight oil and shale gas starts to decline in, you know, 2015 or 2019 or 2020? That's all within a few years of each other on the 20 or 50 year time frame. It doesn't matter that much at all. It's still the same outcome, whether you look 20 or 30 years down the road. And for some reason, our political leadership in our society just jumps on these short term spikes or trends or whatever, because it confirms the belief that they want to have on energy dependence or the ability to you know, uh, continue infinite growth economies without really understanding those implications. And it's, and it's really sad to see. But one last thing I wanted to jump on uh, uh, in reference to today's conversation is I thought there's a really interesting dynamic that Tim Mitchell brought up about how coal mining actually allowed people to enact labor demands because they could then you know, shut down coal trains or go on strike at the mines. And then that caused the ways that elites made money to stop working. And so then they could get shorter work weeks or you know, more humane conditions or better pay. What do you think that is today? Today, we don't really have anything that's equivalent because we don't live in a coal mining world in the same way. And especially in the US, so much of the coal mining is you know, done by big machines. It doesn't take as many people in order to run it. I'm I'm wondering if like today's mines are, you know, Bitcoin mining or maybe even, you know, just going on Facebook because every single time you go on Facebook it's like you're allowing your life to be mined by big corporations in order to let them know about your activities and the things you're interested in so that way they can, you know, make money off of your basic life activities, you know. So do you think that people are just going to uh, all the Facebook users are going to band together and say no more data mining for my information? I I think the only way to do that is to not do it. Like just if a a massive chunk wanted to of society wanted to, you know, have a strike today that had the same kind of impact as these massive coal strikes did in the early 20th century, maybe we'd have to get like 30 million people to just not use Facebook for two months, you know? Wow. So I have a general strike on Facebook. Yeah, but not even just Facebook, like maybe even that would be like Facebook and Twitter and, you know, all social media and basically most of the Internet. You know, so like, our show would, would die is what you're saying. Well, we're on terrestrial radio, too. <laughs> so, you know, our terrestrial radio <laughs> wouldn't work. But, yeah. yeah, you know, people just not downloading our pie. I'd be fine with that if that meant, you know, a successful strike. <laughs> well, it's true. And people maybe just shutting off their cell phone for an hour a day. That might be something the small to start off with. You know, don't yeah. don't use your cell phone for an hour at noon or something like that and see what happens. Yeah, I think that's a good way to start. I mean, I thought it was so fascinating that the idea of sabotage started when workers would, instead of going on strike, they just work poorly. They just do their jobs really poorly. (laughs) You know, like uh, everyone could, it seems to me like a lot of the people in some of the uh, corporate jobs I was familiar with, they were doing sabotage every day (laughs) because they just didn't want to be there. Well, if you're talking about sabotage by doing poor work, you walk into pretty much any cubicle farm and you'll see a lot of a lot of <laughs> examples of sabotage going on right there. Yeah, definitely. It's really interesting. But that just brings up some news stories that kind of tell the same story from a different angle. And one of these was from earlier in the month of November this year uh, from Al Jazeera America talking about how the median wage in the United States has fallen to the lowest level since 1998. Not only is the net energy in the world declining, it's having a huge impact on not only 
economic growth, but also just the incomes that everyday people are uh, able to have access to. And so the median wage where basically half of workers make more or and half of them make less than this value ended up at twenty seven thousand five hundred nineteen dollars in 2012. And that's, this is just another example of that disappearing middle class, that dourly mobile middle class that seems to be just on the rise. These are people who are not making any kind of money that's a sustainable wage. I mean, $27,000 really doesn't buy you much in these these days. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are, are seeing the kind of frustration that's growing where, you know, everyone had this idea of continual opportunity where you would have access to better jobs or better uh, parts of a career, or you'd have access to uh, you know, uh, even a two or three percent raise every year to keep up with inflation, and they're not getting it. And the way a lot of people are responding uh, takes us into the next story I wanted to touch on, which is from Fortune magazine on CNN Money called "What I Saw at the Doomsday Prepper Convention," and we posted this one on our Facebook page. But it's about a guy who went to one of the many increasing kind of uh, preparedness conventions, and he went to this, and he thought it you know be crazy people who are you know prepping for the apocalypse, but it's really just middle-class families in a lot of ways, former middle-class families who are in suburban neighborhoods who aren't really in this stereotypical doomsday prepper kind of world, but they're just looking for, you know, non-GMO food, organic food, and they're looking for more personal resilience in their life in case, you know, the grid goes down like it has for so many people across the U.S. because of all the crazy storms that have been happening over the last few years, or even if it's just learning to do more more things on their own without the need of electric appliances, you know, becoming more energy self-sufficient. Uh, lots of people are starting to get into that because they're seeing how fragile and unhealthy the system is. And they're also thinking, you know, this thing really could break down. They're, it's looking more and more like there could be some kind of large-scale social unrest just because of the issues with the median wage stagnation that we just brought up. And it's not like we are being blindsided by this stuff. This has been happening slowly and increasingly more and more. You look across the ocean over at Europe and you look at Spain, you look at Greece and the kind of unrest that's happening there, the kind of unemployment numbers that are just incredible, especially for the youth. It's no wonder that families and even you know regular people that have no real connection to the show even or any kind of ideas like this. They're watching the mainstream media. They see this stuff. It's no wonder that they're getting afraid. It's no wonder that they're, these kind of conventions, these kind of prepper doomsday conventions are popping up more and more because this stuff is happening and it's not just shows like ours that are reporting it. It's the regular media that's yeah, reporting it. Yeah, you know, this is a mainstream media source, CNN Money. Uh, going out uh, to these prepper conventions. And I've seen stories in the New York Times about, you know, meeting with preppers and all these things. So it's definitely a subculture that's spreading because people are realizing the vulnerabilities that are happening in our society. And as we were discussing with Richard Heinberg today about the short-term thinking that's behind all the media hype on the fracking boom, now there's stories coming out as many oil companies are experiencing write-downs due to their shale assets. And many of these shale gas plays are starting to decline or at least not as grow as fast. 
you're seeing stories like this one that we're going to link to in the show notes from the USA Today, which is the headline saying, could the fracking boom peter out sooner than the Department of Energy expects? And it jumps on this report from the Post Carbon Institute that David Hughes puts out on how it's a temporary bonanza and how fracking is not going to make America energy independent and how this really is a very short term thing. And it, that was a really fringe view even a year ago because so much media was focusing on all of this new oil and gas that was coming out of America. And now because it's an undeniable truth that this kind of thing is going to be very short lived, it's making it into mainstream news sources like the USA Today. It's basically just extending that life of the oil production just a little bit more and making it just a little bit more tenable to keep pulling that oil out of the ground. But it's not a long-term solution at all. It's nowhere near the long-term solution that we're looking for. And like we were just talking about, long-term solutions are really the name of the game when you're talking the sustainability of a culture. And fracking is really not going to get you any closer to that. Yeah, it's the absolute opposite of planting that tree for the church uh, beam that needs to be there several hundred years down the road. But some of the people who have been thinking long-term about our show and have been really appreciating it have been the amazing people who continue to donate to our podcast that allow us to do incredible things like like getting a new Dropbox for Business subscription that will allow us to have a really solid archive of all of our shows. So that way we can share it with our editor, Kevin, who will now be able to use our Dropbox interface than you know, having to bring external hard drives over my house and transfer files all at once. So that's <laughs> going to be really incredible. So we're really fortunate for that. And some of the people who have helped to make that happen are some of our amazing listeners like Nancy in Colorado, who wrote in and said that she can't think us enough for our fantastic work and uh, she's been spending the last seven years battling coal and utilities for more clean energy and it just becomes harder for her to find work when you have a conscience and speak truth and that she really appreciates the show because it gives her hope and keeps her informed even through days that can be very dark and so we really appreciate you continuing to listen Nancy and for your generous donation we're extremely thankful for it also Zach from Illinois sent us in a really generous donation so thank you very much Zach also we received a donation from Kevin in California I must say we're extremely grateful to have Kevin as a donator and a listener because he's the guy who gave us our t-shirts a few years ago we also heard from Martine from Maryland who sent us in a really generous donation. Thank you so much, Martine. And also Aaron in Australia, who not only wrote in to say that he loves our show, but sent some donation money along as well. So we're really grateful for that. And so we've been receiving donations for many of you over the last few months. And any donation of $30 or more will get an extra environmentalist t-shirt. But some of you are still waiting to receive that extra environmentalist t-shirt. Well, we're almost to the point where we can fulfill all of those. I think we have maybe 30 or 40 t-shirts that we need to send around the world uh, when we get them in. But we almost have the final design wrapped up. I just saw a draft of it the other day, and it's so great to finally have a legitimate T-shirt design, not just a logo. It looks absolutely incredible. Our artist has been great to work with. So as soon as that's up, soon after this episode is released uh, in later November, we're going to have that design posted on our website and also on the Extra Environmentalist Facebook page and Twitter. So if you're not following us on Facebook or Twitter, be sure to check out our website to see what that t-shirt design looks like. This is Kevin calling from Sweden, and I'm just listening to episode 68, Better Than Normal. Uh, 
I think uh, I've been listening from the very, very beginning, but maybe I missed a few there at the very beginning. And I've always wanted to make some call-ins, but there was just something on this one that kind of struck me. I guess maybe you could say a little bit, struck me a little bit the wrong way. Something that he he said uh, there about 20 minutes or so into the to the podcast. He talked about the 2,000-year-old book and uh, warnings about developing these and showing these kind of gifts off or whatever the word is that you wanted to see them, that it was counterproductive, basically. And then in the next breath, he said, but I'm a scientist and I don't care about that. No, he didn't say those words. But that's basically what he said. And in my thoughts and opinions and what I've learned is I think that's kind of what is the problem with what's going on in the world nowadays. We are care about the ego and not the, the spiritual. And if we are going to try to develop skills, what are we going to do? Like he said, show them off in the Olympics? Or are we going to be quiet about them and quietly go about our business, about making ourselves, and then hopefully, ultimately, everything else on this planet better? Yeah, but I've been just really enjoying the shows. You guys are so creative. And uh, keep up the good work. Hey, all. Thanks so much for Kevin's really insightful voicemail and all the way from Sweden, who has actually been there with us from the beginning. And we really do appreciate any kind of comments that we get. We especially, especially appreciate the ones that are a little bit critical of the show. Those always are some of my favorite voicemails. I think I got to agree with Kevin on this one because that was really the thing that was rubbing me the wrong way with, with our last episode as well with uh, Dean Radin for our Halloween special, where for every year for a Halloween special, we're going to dive into some you know fringe topics and, and see where it takes us. But uh, this year, we were talking about these superhuman capabilities that Dean Radin studies. And I got to feel the same way. Like, even if human telepathy and remote viewing and precognition is possible, I don't know if it can be harnessed in any way that's useful. And once it is harnessed in any way that's, like, repeatable and useful, then it basically becomes like the Darth Vader that he was talking about in the episode where you essentially become driven by ego and demonstrating and using these things. And then it, you know, shit goes sideways. Like it doesn't turn out well. You basically turn into a Sith Lord or, or something like that. <laughs> and you're lifting your fellow colleagues up and choking them, you know, with the Darth Vader grip. Well, there, there is always the Darth Vader grip to be worried about. But, you know, anytime you can expand human powers and human telepathy and remote viewing, why not? Why not try it? What, what's the harm in trying to develop those skills other than the Darth Vader grips, you know, what is the, what is the harm really? <laughs> well, Darth Vader, Darth Vader grips are, are definitely pretty scary, but we also got an email from Dave who wrote in and he said that he enjoys our podcast and he's really amazed at the guests we've been able to interview, but Dean Radin is not one of them. And he says he sometimes hangs out at the Institute of Noetic Sciences where Dean Radin resides. And Dave says that Radin doesn't grasp the fact that the concept of mind can be an illusion without being a meaningless illusion. And the psi stuff could be dangerous to one's delusions, even as it tickles one's funny bone and stimulates one's imagination to aspire to the power of gods and or demons. So Dave suggests that we get out of the shallow end of the pool. And so <laughs> thanks for that, Dave. We really appreciate it. And I don't think we're going to be talking with anyone in the vein of Dean Radin anytime until 
maybe next year's Halloween episode. Who knows what we'll do for Halloween next year? It'll be interesting. I can tell you that much. And there's plenty of other episodes like the net energy, like the economic stuff that you can really sink your teeth into in our backlog, which is pretty extensive. And if you can check us out on our website, which is www.extraenvironmentalist.com, you can find the list of all of our episodes right there, all free, all for you to download at your convenience. You can find us on iTunes where they can also be downloaded. You can find us on Stitcher Radio and also on Facebook where you can join the conversation. Find us on Twitter where we tweet out some very interesting links and some of the things that you hear about on this show, the articles that we talk about here and some other things that probably are not listed on this show. Find us there as well. You can email the show at podcast.extraenvironmentalist.com and we love to get your voicemails on Skype and on our terrestrial voicemail number. 919-701-XTRA where you can leave us a fantastic voicemail message like the one you just heard on this show. It's been a really busy month at the Extra Environmentalist here in November. This is the first podcast we put out in November of 2013, but we've already done two events on our live stream channel on YouTube at youtube.com slash user slash Environmental. We're going to be live streaming much more from there. So subscribe and find out when our live events are coming. We're going to be putting those on our Facebook and our Twitter page, but you can find videos on our website now of those two events that we've done this past month. One of them was with Ecological Economist Dan O'Neill talking about the steady state economy. And then we did another one, which is our first ever extra environmentalist live event on the idea of what really makes a sustainable city, what really makes a green city considering all of these factors that we discuss on The Extra Environmentalist. They both went really well, and I can say that it was really just a pilot. We had some issues with the video and audio for the Green City event, but it's really just a pilot for what we're going to start doing next year in 2014. We plan to have three or four live events that we're doing here in Vancouver. Um, that'll be specifically Extra Environmentalist theme, but we're going to have a few more that no doubt we'll do where other organizations or, or live stream on similar Extra Environmentalist topics. So stay tuned. Be sure to look out for for more extra environmentalist events in the future. So thank you so very much for listening to the Extra Environmentalist. We could not do this show without your support. Have a fantastic day. to a pair of climate scientists who are calling for what some may view as a shocking solution to the climate crisis, a rethinking of the economic order in the United States and other industrialized nations. Their names are Kevin Anderson and Alice Bose-Larkin. They work at the influential Tyndall Center for Climate Change Research in England, as well as the University of Manchester. They were featured in a recent widely read article by Naomi Klein, headlined, How Science is Telling Us All to Revolt. According to Anderson and Bose Larkin, many of the solutions proposed by world leaders to prevent runaway global warming will not be enough to address the scale of the crisis. They've called for, quote, radical and immediate degrowth strategies in the U.S., EU, and other wealthy nations. 
In the short term, the only way we can get our emissions down is to actually reduce the level of energy we consume. The levels of reduction we now need in carbon dioxide and therefore energy consumption are such that for many of us, for the wealthy of us certainly, um, we can't carry on as we're going now. So we'll have to consume less. And there's absolutely no way out of that. The maths are absolutely clear. Specifically, I mean, about what people use, for example, refrigerators, for example. Well, refrigerators are a good example. Refrigerators are a major energy consumer in our homes. But you look at the, the size of the, uh, the refrigerators you have in the U.S., they're, they're much, much bigger than the ones that we traditionally would use in, in Europe and the, and, and the U.K. There's no real need for that. If the, if the refrigerator is that much bigger, that means it uses that much more energy. So in that very simple case, you can imagine a quite rapid phase-out of the existing refrigerators for much smaller designs, but also much more efficient designs. We would have to fly much less often than we do now. We'd have to think about even some of the issues to do difficult ones, but to, to accept maybe things like hygiene, where we've now normalised showering every day, sometimes twice a day. That means we have to wash, uh, clean, uh, change our clothes every day, and then we have to use more washing machines. So you see this sort of build up one thing after another, that over the last 10 or 15 years, we've, we've, we've moved from which were quite high carbon lifestyles to these completely profligate, extraordinarily high carbon lifestyles, and we've made them normal. That actually what we did 10 or 15 years ago, if we did that now, we'd think we were strange. next episode of the Action Environmentalist, we're talking with Nicole Foss and Lawrence Bomert. While John Michael Greer answers your questions. Some places have gone over the edge already. Not that I have lectured in places like Greece and Spain, although I'm very much aware of what's going on there, but in places like that, people are so much in the thick of it that they, they don't really want to hear a lot in the way of analysis. They wouldn't want me to turn up and say, well, gee, I'm sorry, you lost everything. Let me explain why. But they're just busy getting on with it. So there are local currencies and things all over the place. All kinds of initiatives are springing up in these places because they're necessary. In other parts of Europe where things are not in that state of crisis, they're not already in depression, but they are very concerned. I find there's enough fear in the system that they almost don't want to hear any more of it because it's too real now. So if I was traveling in Europe a couple of years ago, they were more receptive because they were a little bit concerned, concerned enough to want to know more. But it was a bit like watching a horror movie where you can go and have your frisson of excitement and then go home to your comfortable little life. And it's not that real to you. But when it starts to get real, what I found is that people often tend to shut down. If you actually want to have a future, if you want there to be a future for your children and grandchildren or what have you, then you need to seriously look at the lifestyle that has no future and say, I need a different lifestyle. I need to do something else. And then you need to act on it.
U.S. Department of the Interior, we're very concerned about America's energy security. We know that because of all the international political instability at the moment and the global depression, that the independence of American energy is important to you and your family. That's why, even though whale oil has been in decline for many decades, we're excited about a new development in the whale industry, the magic of safe, clean, natural whale gas. Thanks to advanced technology and the ban on whaling, we have had a proliferation in the abundance of whales on the bottom of the ocean. Now, instead of actually shooting the whales and bringing them up and carving them up for the whale oil that lives inside their bodies, we are now going to be capturing their flatulence. Unsurprisingly, whales have a lot of flatulence. At the U.S. Department of the Interior, we know that our boys on the whaling ship vessel Pequod have been working hard at the next fuel revolution. That's right, infinite growth and continued progress is here to stay, boys and girls, because America's whale gas revolution's only just getting started. Let's talk to an actual scientist. We here at the U.S. Department of the Interior's research facility on whale gas have been researching the best way to find whales and make sure that they produce an abundance of gas to power our burgeoning energy future. We've developed a special proprietary mix of tracking chemicals used to track whales and make sure that we get the best gas out of every whale. We dump these tracking chemicals here into the Atlantic Ocean and every whale it finds, it will dissolve the whale into small little bits of blubber that then converts them into to maximum amounts of gas production captured by these giant balloons that we hover over top of the ocean. So you're actually dissolving the whales? Shut up, Timmy. It's for energy and progress and growth. The best thing is we can dump these tracking chemicals in the water with zero impacts on the water itself. Why is the ocean on fire? Ah! Ah! Our research has found that a special diet of beans and your Aunt Petunia's chili produces the maximum amount of gas per whale that's dissolved. Uh, here you go, boys. Some more of that special technology mix you want from my chili. Thanks, Aunt Petunia. We couldn't have done this without you. The best part is our boys at Royal Dutch Whale have developed new upgrades that take our whale gas capture balloons and turn them into giant zeppelins. Zeppelins made of lead. <laughs> Mr. What if we just capture the whales and giant nuts and then grind them into little pulpy pieces and big blenders? That sounds like a great idea. Let's do it. Now we're developing special whale-to-liquids technologies where we just liquefy the entire whale and we can burn the liquid afterwards. We've been talking about enough hot air that we could fly around the world in 180 days or less. That whale captures the beauty of the natural world. It also makes an excellent way to capture energy to power America's energy future. The public-private partnership of the Department of the Interior and Royal Dutch Whale were really innovating America's energy future. Safe, clean, natural whale gas.